0: Give a huge hub of every nation welcome to Pastor Dorian Riggie. Amen. Amen. It's great to be back in the pulpit here. I, I just love this church. Don't you love this church? I, um, this is my fourth service today, and I want to tell you that every time I just get so excited. And I said this in the morning service, and I want to say it again. It is just such an honor and a privilege for Belinda and I to be part of this church. It is just such an honor and a privilege for us to be submitted to Pastor Simon and Pastor Lindy as our senior pastors. Many of you may know this, many of you may not, but many of our senior leaders who we are submitted to now were once sitting where you are and we were teaching them and leading them because Belinda and I have been in this ministry for almost 30 years now. And it is such an honor and such a privilege for us to be submitted under Pastor Lindy and Pastor Simon and these two incredible rock stars right here. Amen. So Viwe and Marsha, we love you guys. We just, we just see God's hand all over you. And I want to tell you, I would follow you guys to the ends of the world if that's where God told us to go. Amen. Let's give them a hand because it's just more of people like this that we can follow. And I just praise God, you know, as Pastor Saviwa was saying, out of over a million submissions, 30 of them were chosen to give an oral presentation in Parliament this Thursday. So pray for our leaders as they go and they just communicate God's word and God's truth to our political leaders in this nation, that they might just hear what God is saying to us at this time. Amen. Well, guys, as you know, we've been doing a series called Facing Giants and it's a series where we've been looking at what some of these personal giants are in our life and what it is that we need to do in order to root them out and eliminate them. And where this series came from is it came from a passage of Scripture in Deuteronomy chapter 7. And if you go and read Deuteronomy 7, you will see it's a passage of Scripture where God is speaking to His people, the Israelites, and is about to tell them, He's instructing them before they go into the promised land. And as they're about to go and he says to them, listen, there are seven other nations, bigger than you, nastier than you, stronger than you, and I'm going to give them to you. You are going to wipe them out. But you need to eject them and eliminate them from the promised land. You must not have any alliances with them because if you make any alliances or any compromises with one of these nations, you will never walk in freedom in this land that I've given you. You will never be effective as my people in the promised land if you maintain a sort of kind of you know, alliance with any of these nations. And friend, it's exactly the same way with some of these personal giants. God is telling us to root them out of our lives, to eject them from our lives, to eliminate them, and not to kind of have on some partial alliance God, it's not all of me, but it's a little bit of me. Because if that's your stance, you will never have freedom. And you will never be as effective as God wants you to be in his kingdom. And so you may remember, two weeks ago, was Pastor Sai here as well? Pastor Sai kicked off and he looked at the look good giant. And this giant tells us that image is king. It tells us that what's on the outside is much more important than what God's doing on the inside. It says, it doesn't really matter what my character looks like as long as people look and see and think that I'm great. And the way we deal with this giant, the way we eject this giant from our lives is we humble ourselves before the Lord and we say, God, forgive me. Please work on my character because that God is what you see. And then Pastor Roger spoke about the feel-good giant And this is the giant that wiped Samson out. This is the one that Samson could never get a handle on and a rule over in his own life. This is the giant that tells us that pleasure is king. This is the giant that says, if it feels good, do it. If I want it, get it. And the way we deal with this giant in our life is we worship the only one who really deserves all of our worship, and that's the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And today we're going to move on and we're going to look at the giant of be right. And this giant tells us that knowledge is king. If you know what to do and you've got it, then you are the king if you happen to know the right answer. And as we will see as we go through the sermon this evening, the problem with this giant is that when we believe we have the answer, we sometimes believe it's okay for us to behave badly, manipulate people force our agenda onto them because we know what the right thing is to do. And then next week, Pastor Sabiwe is going to wrap the series up. Hey Amen. We're saving the best for last, right? He's going to wrap the series up with the be in control giant. And this giant is very subtle. This one says, I know that if my hand's on the steering wheel, it's safer for everybody else. So I need to make sure that I can keep this car on the road. But I'm not going to say any more about that. We're going to be now looking at the giant of Be Right, the one that says, knowledge is king. Now, what does this giant look like? Well, in the New Testament, well, in the Old Testament too, but in the New Testament, we particularly see this group of people come to the fore, and it's a group of people called the Pharisees. Now, we have a very negative view of the Pharisees and for good reason. But how many of you know that the Pharisees were not meant to have this negative view placed upon them? They earned it, but the Pharisees were meant to be the Navy SEALs of the day. They were meant to be the ones that understood the word better than anybody else. They were the ones that understood the law, studied the law, spent years and years and years teaching it, learning it, having it imparted to them. They were the ones that should have seen Jesus way before anybody else. So these guys committed themselves to the study of the law, but there was a problem. Because they were so smart and they're so educated, they considered themselves to be the elite. They became the religious and the political leaders of the day. And so instead of being there to serve people and recognize Jesus when he arrived, they in fact filled themselves with pride. And they said, because we are so smart, we're the ones that should be served. They became unteachable. It's interesting. Sometimes we think unteachable people don't like to learn. No, they love to learn, but they just wanted to learn from their own kind. Okay? But when they were unteachable, they were unteachable when they said to themselves, what does this uneducated carpenter's son have to say to us? And so they wouldn't hear, and there was this arrogance. And they said, we've got nothing to learn from you. But it didn't end there. Because what they also would do is they would manipulate people and they would hold them to standards which they themselves could not keep either. And so this is what Jesus took on when he took on the Pharisees. But Jesus, unlike everybody else at that time, was not intimidated, impressed, or concerned about the Pharisees. Because what Jesus did was he saw them exactly for who they were. And so when Jesus looked at the Pharisees, and you'll see all of this in Matthew chapter 23, when he looked at the Pharisees, what he said is, he said blatantly and clearly for everyone to hear, you guys don't practice what you preach. All right? I see your motive. It's not about trying to please God. It's about trying to look good. One of the giants, right? You just want to look good. He exposed the hypocrisy. He said, you guys make a big deal of the 10th because people see you throwing money into the box at the, you know, at the front of the temple. But how about the more important, the more weighty matters of the law? Justice and mercy and faithfulness. You should focus on those, but not neglect the tithing, but you should focus on those. And so Jesus exposed their hypocrisy. But the thing that he really took them on the most was he challenged them in the way that they treated people. You see, they had a responsibility because they understood the law and they knew it better than anyone else. And they, more than anyone else, knew that even they could not keep the law and they understood it better. Instead of imparting life and love and encouragement to people, they would pretend that they were absolutely a one with God and they would just heap all sorts of pressures and guilt on people. If you lived at that time and you were hurting and you were in pain, and you needed somewhere to reach out to. You needed to kind of experience a bit of God in your life. The Pharisees were the last people that you would believe that you'd get this from. And so Jesus took that on. And so what was the real problem with the Pharisees? What was the real problem with this be right giant? It's important to understand what the problem is not first. See, the problem with the be right giant is not the pursuit of truth. It's not trying to understand what God's word is saying. It's not, Lord, give us the solution. What is the solution according to your word? Jesus never criticized them for studying the law. Jesus never criticized them for knowing the law. You see, the problem with the be right giant is not the pursuit of truth, but it's the application of that truth in your own life and in the lives of others. And you see, the Pharisees, instead of getting this truth and serving people with it, got this truth became haughty, became proud, and used it as a stick to beat others into submission. And so the real problem, the real problem with this, we'll get it. No. There we go. The real problem with this be right giant is not the pursuit of truth, but the application of truth. And so what Jesus was saying was, he was saying, Pharisees, you've become so proud and so superior. And that pride is rooted in your academic education. That's not of me. Jesus was saying you've become so unteachable and so arrogant. And that's interesting because in your arrogance, you still cannot keep one single part of the law. You take these harsh standards which you cannot keep yourselves and you impose them on others. And what you then do is you manipulate people's lives and you take control of their lives to serve yourself because you want to look good you want to feel good, and you want to be in control. Now, you might be sitting there and thinking, yeah, my goodness, thank goodness, I'm not as bad as those Pharisees. And I'm pleased you'll be thinking that because, man, that was deep end. But I want to ask you, how many times have we, when we've sensed a revelation from God, when we've found some particular truth and we've become so convicted by it, how many times have we, operated in a little more pride than we should have instead of humility towards those that we start sharing that truth with have we ever found ourselves when we're reaching out to help somebody who's struggling with something and they give us some advice think to ourselves dude bro are you really giving me advice I mean who's the one with their marriage in a shambles right now Who's the one that's struggling to kind of, you know, uh, struggling with this addiction? Are you, dude, seriously, you're giving me advice? And we don't say that, of course. But how many times do we think that and become arrogant and unteachable? How many times have we found ourselves when we have some revelation? It may even be a godly revelation. It may be a revelation of God wanting us to improve our prayer life. And God wants to give us a revelation to trust Him to do more. And we find ourselves imposing that standard on others. And we get irritated when they don't adopt it. And we find ourselves saying, God, at least least you've got one faithful servant in your kingdom. (laughs) How many times do we find something, we see somebody hurting, we see somebody not getting it right, and we just say, okay, listen, Lord, I'm going to just help them out here. I'm going to move things around for their benefit but you find yourself manipulating situations just a little bit. You see, folks, that's how the be right giant operates. Your motives may be great, but unfortunately the way in which you're going about it is not honoring God and honoring individuals. So you might say to yourself, but hang on, Dorian, okay, I can see that that can be wrong, but, but hang on. Surely there must be some instances where the ends can justify the means. Sometimes they must be okay, because if I really have someone's best interests at heart, is it okay for me to kind of fall foul of one of these? Well, I would say that the person who has monopoly on truth would be God. The person who has the monopoly on wanting my best interests and your best interests would be God too. So if we see God operating in one of those ways, then I guess we're safe to be able to do it as well. But if the guy with a monopoly on all these things refuses to act that way, then maybe we shouldn't either. So let's have a look at God's modus operandi, shall we? Deuteronomy chapter 30. God is speaking to his people and he's telling them, and he says this, he says, folks, see this I've set before you today, life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you are not obedient, and if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, then I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. I've set before you life and death, blessings and cursings. Choose life. That, folks, is the way God Operates in our lives. The individual person that would, the only person that could actually command our absolute submission, demanded from us, no questions asked, chooses to stand aside and say, When it comes to salvation, when it comes to whether or not you're gonna follow me and honor me, I leave the choice up to you. I've designed you with a free will, I've designed you in my image. And as a result of that, I will clearly put before you the two options. I will clearly tell you the advantages and the dangers of both. I will even encourage you to do the right thing. But I will not step over a boundary that I've placed there and make you do the decision that I would like you to make. You see, God says, I will operate in a way that treats you with respect. And if God is not prepared to overstep that boundary, folks, then there is never a reason for us to be able to do that either. And so this is what we call God, the way that God operates is what we call a culture of honor. And I know that term's become more popular in more recent times with people like Danny Silk and the books that they've written. But I'd like to define to you, according to the word of God, what the culture of honor really means. And we're going to use this passage of scripture in Deuteronomy chapter 30. You see, when we operate in a culture of honor, It doesn't have this effect on people's lives. It doesn't have this effect on people's lives of despair, grief, and anguish. Instead, it will have this effect on people's lives if we embrace the message and we respond to God in faith. So what is this culture of honor? Well, firstly, the culture of honor identifies ownership and responsibility. We're going to look at four aspects of a culture of honor today. What do I mean by that? Well, first and foremost, as I said, God has created us with a free will. And so he has automatically set up in place to say there's certain things that are my responsibility, but there are certain things that are yours. It's my responsibility to work out a plan for salvation for you, which I've done. It's your responsibility to decide whether or not you're going to engage in it or not. I will not overstep that boundary and force you to make the decision that I would love you to make. I'm leaving that up to you. And so a culture of honor recognizes that authority flows from responsibility. And if I'm responsible, then I have the authority to exercise that responsibility. And so in order for us to be effective, folks, we need to realize whose problem this is. And salvation is my problem. Because without God, I'm going nowhere. Without God, I'm reaping death and destruction. And so I own that and I say, Lord Jesus, I embrace what you did at Calvary and I choose to follow you. I've got a bit of a picture up on the board there. And that's just to illustrate this thing called ownership. Johnny's come home once again with an F on his report card. Mom loves Johnny, of course she does. Mom is really scared that Johnny is not going to be able to get a job one day because Johnny's not working hard enough. And so mom is beyond, you know, beyond afraid now. She's like, you know, she's at the end of herself. And she goes, Johnny, I don't know what else to do. I've threatened you. I've encouraged you. I I bought tutors, I have got you those maths packages, I bought you that fancy scientific calculator. I don't know what else to do. Johnny, do you not understand that unemployment rates in South Africa are close to 30%? What do you want to do all day? Do you want to clean toilets? That's not even going to work. You've never cleaned a toilet in your life before. And why? Because mom is worked up and upset. But what's the problem with this? This discussion. The problem with this discussion is that mom is owning that F. Johnny's not owning his F. And mom is so worked up and excited that she's trying everything. She's throwing money at the problem, throwing threats at the problem. But Johnny has not owned his F. For Johnny to change his habits and his behavior, he's got to own that F. Or else there's going to be a play and a repeat on this every three to six months. So how about this, mom? Johnny, I heard Dorian preach on Sunday And I realized something. I've been trying to own this F of yours, and that doesn't work. Johnny, unless you own these results, you're gonna keep making the same mistake. But I wanna help you, Johnny. What's the problem? Duh, Mom, the problem is I got an F. Now, Mom, you probably wanna let the attitude slide at this stage. You want him to own the F right now, we'll own the attitude later. So you go, well, Johnny, I don't think that's the problem. I think the F is the result of a problem. Because, you see, I don't think you planned to get an F, did you? No. But yet you got one, and that's not the first time. So, so Johnny, what seems to be the problem? Why do we keep getting Fs when we don't plan to get them? Well, Mom, it's because you keep hucking me all the time. Well, Johnny, you're right, and I've owned that. And I'm sorry, but let me understand something. Are you saying that if I just ignored you and left you alone, you'd be getting A's? Now, maybe Johnny needs 24 hours, 48 hours to think about this. (laughs) But at some point, we want to get Johnny to the place where he goes, no, mom, listen, I, I need to work harder. Okay. So how are we going to do that, my boy? Well, you know, mom, I do try. I try. I really do try but I just seem to get distracted so often. Okay, my boy, what seems to be distracting you? Well, my mates and the WhatsApps just keep popping up. Ah, maybe if we put your phone away whilst you were studying. And then, and then, and then the Xbox calls me. Well, what happens if I just, you know, we just remove the Xbox for the week and we put it out on weekends? You see, now we're getting to something and now it's becoming useful. Why? Because Johnny is owning his F. And that is what a culture of honor is all about, because mom can't own it and fix it for him, because he may kind of perform well next time, and then he's going to let it go the third time, because it's not mom's problem, it's Johnny's problem. And so a culture of honor says, whoever has responsibility, owns it, and has the authority in that situation. Secondly, a culture of honor must and can only operate in an environment of love. Now this one is so misunderstood today, especially with the Hollywood version of what love really is. We kind of think love is this emotion, love is this feeling, and the truth is love does cause emotions and love does cause feelings. But love is not driven by emotional feeling. Word of God says God is love, and he's told us in his word, 1 Corinthians 13, exactly what love is. And what is love? Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy Love does not boast. Love is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but it rejoices with the truth. Love always protects. Love always trusts. Love always hopes. Love always perseveres. Love never fails. So when mom is interacting with Johnny... She goes, Johnny, I'll be patient. Johnny, I'm going to be kind. I'm not going to remind you of all the other times you've messed up and keep this record of wrongs. Because, Johnny, I want to help you win in this situation. You see, guys, at its very core, the culture of honor is a culture of discipleship. Because it says, it says, it says, hold on, it says, it's not about me. This is about how I can help you become all that God has called you to be. And when I change that perspective, all of a sudden, I don't get mad and upset and crazy. And I go, okay, I know nothing's going to happen unless you own it. And as you own it, I want to come alongside you and help you win at this thing and become all that God has called you to be. Frank is a colleague at the office. And for the last few months, he really has been dropping the ball. And it's been hurting us because he's in our team. And his contributions either add or take away from our performance. He's been coming to meetings late. He's been shoddy in his work. We've all had to kind of carry him. And now we're getting really irritated because, you know, this is just not on anymore. So there's two ways this, this discussion could go down. The one way is, Frank, listen, mate. Your behavior has been unacceptable. If you don't pull up your socks, you can go and find another team to work for. All right? That's a pretty normal discussion. It's quite truthful, isn't it? But how about this with a culture of honor? I know Frank's performance is hurting us and our team. But let's not make it about us for a moment. Let's try and make it about what's good for Frank. Frank, we've noticed that the last few months have been tough. You've been late for meetings. Your results have been down. And we see that it's been tough with your interactions and your relationship with others. Frank, what's What's wrong? How can we help? What seems to be the problem? Because you see, it's not about us. It's about how can we help Frank become all that Frank needs to be to be an effective member of our team? Now, if Frank won't own it, the result of both are going to be the same. Frank will get fired. But can you see how the one approach is, it's all about us, now pull up your socks, whereas the other approach is, you know what, Frank, it does hurt us, but let's, we're going to put that aside and we're going to say, Frank, what can we do to get alongside you to help you be more effective in this team and be all that God has called you to be? You see, that's what a culture of honor does. Unlike the Be Right giant, which says, listen, dude, he has the standard, shape up or ship out. The third aspect of a culture of honor is that a culture of honor can only operate in an environment of truth and honesty. You see, it doesn't help us or Frank if we go, ah, oh, Frank, it's okay. You know what? Your results have been a bit, ah, oh, but it doesn't really matter. It doesn't help mom going, Johnny, Ben oh, if he's all you're good for, it's okay when she knows he can do better. It doesn't help that we pretend. And so a culture of honor calls sin, sin. A culture of honor calls truth, truth. A culture of honor calls bad behavior, bad behavior. But it does so in an environment of love. Because we're saying it's not about us, but we're also not going to pretend that it's not a problem. Because it is a problem. And we want to help you become all that God has called you to be. And so, if the first time you address Frank is the day you give him his letter that he's being fired, that wouldn't be operating in a culture of honor either, would it? Because you've given him no opportunity. No, okay, maybe he should have known better, etc. But hold on. I think I could have done more to help Frank become all that God wants him to be as well. And so a culture of honor can only operate in an environment of truth and honesty. And finally... A culture of honor can only operate in an environment of trust. 2 Timothy 1 verse 7, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love, power, and a sound mind. Sometimes we will use fear to try and control people and control their actions. It may even be because we think it's for their own good. But here's the problem when you induce fear into a situation to get people to do stuff. When I'm inducing fear, what I'm really saying is I'm saying, listen, dude, I'm that big yellow truck and you're the little white car. And if you don't play the game, I will crash you. And how do we do this? Well, we're quite sophisticated, actually. In a marriage, it kind of looks something like this. I don't really appreciate the way you're treating me right now. I don't think I deserve this. So, I'm going to give you the silent treatment. Maybe I'll withhold intimacy. Maybe I'll be passive-aggressive. But, mate, you will get it into your head. Okay? Or, I don't like the way she's treating me right now, so hold on. You know what? I'm just going to withhold. Honey, it's a tight month. There's no money Sorry, you know, haircut, mm -mm, it's not going to work this month. Why? Because there's this passive aggressive. Instead of us going, okay, let me tell you something. If I have an issue that I need to fix, and I fear that I'm going to be beaten up by you if I bring it to your attention, it's going to push it further down. And so a culture of honor can't operate in an environment where I'm just too afraid to be honest about what's really happening if I feel that I'm going to get clapped every single time I do that. And so you've got to root out this culture of fear and replace it with this culture of honor and this culture of trust. Because you see, a culture of fear will only last as long as either the other person cares or the other person remains afraid. You see, at some point, your kids grow up and they know you're not going to throw them out the house. And they they realize, hey, I'm that little white car, and I know you're a big yellow truck, but I can ride faster than you. And I can get away. And you know what? The relationship at that point is probably broken down so much that I don't actually care what you think anymore. And friends, unfortunately, there's a lot of marriages that built on a culture of fear and end up 15, 20 years later where, you know what? I don't care anymore. Do your thing. It's not a culture of honor. Rather than a marriage that says, listen, honey, I know you're struggling with stuff. I'm struggling with stuff. I want to be there for you. And I want to make this a safe place for us to own our stuff together. That's what a culture of honor does. Now, in a culture of honor or in any environment, for example, we have freedom of choice. But how many of you know we don't have freedom of consequences? And so, I have a choice. I want to stay at this level And if I want to stay at this level, I have a choice. I either stay on the stage, but if I choose to walk off the stage, I can't choose to stay at this level. Right? If I want to stay at this level, the choice is made. If I step off, there's another consequence, and there's not much I can do about it. So, in a culture of honor, I can choose to own something, or I can choose not. I can choose to take responsibility, or I can choose not to take responsibility. But realize that the consequences will follow the choices I make. When God approaches us, He says, choose life. But we have a choice. And we can choose death. But if we choose death, you don't, ex- don't expect to live. And so, folks, I want to end this evening by just being very real with you. And um, everyone's nervous. Sorry, I've been faking it the whole way through up until now. That's a joke, okay? Uh, that's a joke. My daughter's heard this aspect of the sermon before, and so she'll probably be able to tell you whether or not I've made any progress. But, but I struggle with anger sometimes. Not anger at people in particular or at anybody, but it'll normally be anger with myself or with the situation. And here's an example. I'll be working on my bicycle and my fingers don't fit into where it's going and things are not working and this job should have taken 10 minutes and an hour later I'm still doing it and I'm starting to get angry or my computer's not working and the email's shutting down and I'm not able to print and I'm getting angry. Not at Alex or Dominic or Belinda, just at myself and at stuff. And when I get angry, it's not a very pleasant place for others to be. And so Belinda's brought this to my attention on more than one occasion. <laughs> and I have a choice. You see, I can either say, listen, you know, babes, come on, you know what? You don't know the stress I'm under. I, I just Just give me a break. You know what I mean? Just give me a break. It's not that critical. I mean, if you, I mean, the husbands out there do tons worse than this. I mean, just give me a break, babes. <laughs> now, I could do that, guys. I really could. I could choose to not own it or own it in that way. But I can't also choose to have a loving wife or respectful kids at the same time. I can either choose to own it and say, God, help me fix this. Or I can say, "I ah, get lost, guys. But then don't expect guys to be going, dad, you're a hero, right? So what does a culture of honor do? In that situation, what is my obligation? In my situation, it's, oh, Lord Jesus, help me take ownership of this challenge, of this issue of anger in my life. Lord, I want to love my family. I want to lead my family by example. I want to protect them from all things, and I want to start by protecting them from my own weaknesses, Belinda, babes, I'm sorry. Kids, I'm sorry. Please be patient with me. Please help me get better at this. Please help me identify those things that trigger me so that I can be aware of it before I get there. Thank you for being patient and thank you for bringing this to my attention. You see, I can own it. What is Belinda's responsibility in terms of this? Her responsibility is to keep her heart pure. Not to operate out of bitterness, but to always say, God, help me love Dorian. Be patient, to be kind, to be honoring in this situation. Her responsibility is not to pretend it's not there. Not to say, kids, you know what, Dad, it's okay. You know what I mean? He's a, he's a really nice guy in other areas. It's not to pretend it's not there. It's not to kind of like, you know, cover it up. All right? Her responsibility is to call Simson. sin, sin. Call right, right. Call wrong, wrong. But it's also not to try and fix it for me. Yeah. It's also not a kind of like, Get in let me help you there, Dorian. You're not just... It's kind of like, I'm loving you. I'll be there for you. But baby, this is your issue. You need to own it. You need to fix it. Yeah. She needs to resist acting out of hurt. She must resist saying, listen, this is really... I've had enough now and I just really want to punish Dorian right now. She needs to say, no, that's not a culture of honor. And she doesn't. She's loving and she's respectful. She needs to keep engaging with me truthfully to help me see the effect that my behavior is having on her and the family. And, listen to this, and she is responsible to ensure and to take action. If my anger is reaching an extent where it is emotionally or physically damaging her or the rest of the family. You see, that's a consequence of a decision that I make that she's responsible for. And so folks, in a culture of honor, there are things that you can do and there are things that you can't do. But if two parties are prepared to say, God, help us get through this, then it's so different from operating under the guidance of the be right giant that says, dude, he has the standard, meet it or ship out. What can you tell me? There's arrogance, kind of like there's manipulation. Instead, what God is saying to us, he's saying in a culture of honor, you own your stuff, he owns his. There needs to be an environment of love because it's not about you. It's about how they can be all God has called them to be. There needs to be truth and honesty. And finally, there needs to be trust. I'm wrapping up now, Pastor Siv. When I was in Israel with um, Pastor Roger and Pastor Nicola and their boys, it was in 2010. I remember vividly this one moment that we were on the top of this very high mountain and we looked down and there was a valley and a river below. And in the one aspect, around about there as I was standing on the top of the mountain, there was a hill. And there was a hill, which is obviously much lower than the mountain we were standing on. It was almost like a circular hill. And on it, there were these circular contour paths that kind of led from the river around the hill a few times and up to the top. And as we were there, our guide opened the Bible and he turned to Psalm 23. And he read the passage of Scripture that says, he leads me in the paths of righteousness. And then he said to us, he said, the original Greek speaks about circles of righteousness. And then he said this, which I've never forgotten. He said, shepherds will take their sheep down to the river so that they can drink. Then shepherds know that the best grass, the sweetest grass, the most nutritious grass, is at the top of the hill. They know that the sheep need that stuff to get strong and to be healthy. But they don't whip the sheep and chase them up the hill to get there as fast as possible. Because that would just freak them out. So what they do is they take the sheep on an ambling journey. And over an hour or two, the sheep end up from the bottom, right at the top. And they have no idea how they got there. But they're at the place where the sweetest and the most nutritious grass is. You see, the shepherds know the truth. But they are wise enough to say, how do I get my flock there in a way that doesn't stress them out? See, folks, the be right giant doesn't think in terms of circles of righteousness. The be right giant just simply says, that's it. Take it, lump it. Either you play the game or you don't. But God says, it starts by knowing what's right. But then to take it from knowledge and to make it wisdom means we use the culture of honor to communicate. And so I wanna encourage you this evening. As we embark on this incredible journey with God and with each other, as we pursue truth together, let's say, God, help us take that truth and turn it into wisdom by operating in the culture of honor that you've given us. Lord, let us own the stuff that we need to own. Let us let others own the stuff they need to own. We're not gonna try and manipulate and control them just like they can't manipulate and control us. God, help us always operate in love. God, help us always to be truthful. And God, help us to create an environment of trust so that people can be vulnerable and become all that you've called them to be. Amen.